Hey guys, this morning, as we wrap up our faces of another series, I'm going to begin with a question for you. Is there anything about your family which makes them unique or different from, say, any other family? Is there anything about your family which in, in, some, sets, in some sense sets them apart? Uh, I think it's actually a super interesting question for me as, as a husband, as a dad, because at a very real level, I'm, I'm responsible for developing for our family a, a vision and a set of values that we wouldn't just live by, uh, but heck, hopefully we'd be known by them. I mean, think about it. If you're going to start a family or, or lead in a family, shouldn't there be on your part some intentionality in regards to what it is that you're going to as a family value and how you're going to live? I'd say if you're a mom or a dad or maybe a grandma or a grandpa, a fun thing to do this week and maybe wrestle with could be a date night question. What are our family values? What would we want our family to be known by? Why would we be unique or different? If you're planning on starting a family one day, gosh, what a great question to wrestle with and maybe even write some of these things out, post them somewhere. Because families, well, they're made up of people. And well, the writer of Proverbs put it this way, speaking of people and parenting, correct your son and he'll give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. But then he goes on and says, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Or as the old King James put it, without a vision, the people perish. So that's super interesting. Uh, that's, that was a personal question. But now let me apply it to us to the church, as children, sons and daughters of God, the family of God. What is it about our family that makes us unique? What makes us different, sets us apart from all others? What are the visions and the values for the people, the family of God? Maybe put more simply, what is it that makes a Christian a Christian? How could you identify one, pick one out in a crowd? Maybe if you want to put it in a 20th century corporate speak, what's our brand? What makes us different or unique from other people, from other groups, from other religions? Is there a way that people could pick us out in any of those crowds? I mean, think about it, right? I, I can pick bikers out of a crowd. I can pick jocks and goths out of a crowd. I can usually pretty quickly separate out Democrats from Republicans and liberals from conservatives. What about Christians? Shouldn't it be something more than a bumper sticker? Well, for a lot of us growing up, the thing that we were taught that was at the heart of our faith that kind of set us apart were rules and laws and regulations. Put super simply, Christians were people who believed in Jesus and kept the Ten Commandments. In fact, we weren't just a Christian people, we were a Christian nation. Why? Well, because most of the people in the country believed in Jesus, and yeah, sometimes we struggled with the commandments, but at least we believed in those too. And it's easy to see where that branding or identity came from. The Ten Commandments were part of the Old Testament, and, and there they were part of what the Old Testament refers to as the Mosaic Covenant. Sometimes it was just referred to as the Old Covenant. 
Now, a covenant, if you're not familiar with that language, a covenant is a chosen relationship where two parties make binding promises to each other, and they work together to reach a common goal, a vision. A covenant is often accompanied by oaths, signs, ceremonies. Covenants contain defined obligations and commitments between parties. Well, this was the relationship, a covenantal relationship, that God had with his family, with the nation of Israel. And his relationship with them was governed by what is referred to in the scriptures as the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the Israelites were required to obey God and keep the law, the commands. And in return, God promised to protect Israel and to bless them. You see, this is contained in several places in the Old Testament. For example, I'll give you this one spot. Moses records it in the book of Deuteronomy. See, God says, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But... If your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship, then I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. The old covenant. It was, for lack of a better way of putting it, an if-then covenant. If you obey the laws, then you'll be blessed. If you don't, you won't. And interestingly enough, it was these laws that set the people of Israel apart. It's what set God's chosen people apart. It's what made them unique, separate, different. The the way they dressed, uh, the things they ate, maybe even, to put it more bluntly, the foreskin that was removed. It was these laws that helped identify. It was these laws that made unique and set apart the Israelites from all the other nations. That was one of the purposes of the law. It was there to distinguish Israel from all of the other pagan nations and their gods so that it would be very clear to everyone whose God was the real God. Because when God was blessing Israel because of how the law made them unique and set them apart, it would be clear that Israel's God must be the real God. So outside people would know who God is. He would, in a sense, be glorified amongst the nations as Israel kept the law and was blessed. If you ask people on the streets about the Israelites, they would say, oh, those are the people of the laws. That was their brand. That was their identity. You could pick them out because of of what they wore, because of how and what they ate. Now, what's interesting for many, if not most of us, is that this old covenant, this old way of relating to God, is how many of us still relate to God, except now we do it, in a sense, through Jesus. Let me explain. What we tend to do is, We believe in Jesus, but we also believe in the law. It's the law that God wants us to follow. Plus, well, we now have Jesus for when we mess up. If we keep the commandments, God's happy with us. We're right with God, and if we don't, well, now we have Jesus who forgives us. 
That is kind of how Christianity got explained to me. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. And while that bumper sticker's true, that's essentially the old covenant plus Jesus. I'm made right with God by being good. I'm in trouble with God when I sin and when I mess up, but when I do, it's okay because Jesus forgives me. But if we're honest, for most of us, there's still a lingering question, and I get asked it a lot. I know Jesus forgives me, but I'm still not sure if I've been good enough. Or there's the other side of the coin of that question, regarding the law at least. John, is it, well, is it a sin if I do this? John, you know, we hear this in youth ministry a lot. John, like, how far can I go with my girlfriend or boyfriend? But it's not limited to, to the youth. John, how much could I mun- manipulate my taxes and, and still be okay with God? Uh, John, does an innocent lie or a white lie, does that count as lying? And so our identity as Christians, what sets us apart and makes us different and unique in some ways, it gets very convoluted because we're still trying to relate to God through the law, the way that the Israelites did, yet we really struggle with keeping a lot of it, which unfortunately is why most people, when they think of Christians, describe them with that one word, hypocrite. And guys, that identity is not what, what's going to make God known. It's not going to glorify God. And it's this misunderstanding of Christianity which has been at the core of what we've been working through over these last few weeks. Because you see, it was Jesus who was born under all of these laws, who was born into a people under the old covenant way of relating to God. If we do this, God will do that. It was Jesus who was born into a nation whose identity was the law that came and fulfilled the law completed and closed out the old covenant and initiated what we call a new covenant what he called a new covenant a new way a new promise from god a new way to relate to god that had now only one command and hopefully you know it by now gone were all of the ten commandments gone were actually all 600 plus commandments that the nation of israel was living under and they were replaced with a single one john the disciple of jesus recorded it this way a new command i give you jesus said love one another as i've loved you so you must love one another and remember guys remember what it was the purpose one of the purposes of the law was for israel to set them apart so people be able to identify them so people would know that they were followers of the one true god Well, guess what Jesus says about this one new law? By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. They'll be able to pick you out. You'll be unique. You'll be set apart. People will understand who I am if you love one another. It wasn't just a new command that Jesus taught. It was a new covenant, a new promise from God he was ushering in. 
We would no longer be made right through obedience to all of these laws and repeated sacrifices in the temple to remediate our sin. Instead, through the death of this one perfect sacrifice, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who, as John says, takes away the sin of the world, we are through faith in Jesus, by grace, God's unmerited favor and choice, not by any of our works or actions, we are forgiven. We now owe God no more debt. Our debt has been fully settled, completely. And as a result, we are no longer under obligation to all of these laws. Paul summed it up to the Romans this way, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Jesus, in his most famous set of teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to try and help people understand this new freedom and the accompanying new identity. And he does it by putting a new spin on several familiar commandments and traditions. Commandments and traditions that his audience, just like you, had been taught since childhood. And so he starts with, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Well, of course they had. Actually, they had been taught it. It wasn't just said. It was taught and written down by Moses in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. But, Jesus says, imagine the scandal to a Jew Jewish audience when Jesus puts a but in the commands of Moses. But, Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if, if anybody forces you to go one mile, you go with them too. He goes on. You've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, of course they had. Ancient Israel didn't love her enemies. Ancient Israel took every opportunity to destroy her enemies. The psalmist talked plenty about destroying one's enemies. But, Jesus says to this nation... Now I'm telling you, you're to love your enemies and you're to pray for those who persecute you that you may be, here it comes, children of your Father in heaven. There's a new vision for the family here, folks. How about this one? You've heard that it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, Jesus doesn't simply encourage followers to obey the old covenant laws. In this case, he raises the bar on what would be required of one of his followers. All of which must have gotten his listeners wondering in regards to the old law, their old identity that they had been living under. This was their hallmark. This was their calling. This was what their mamas taught them. I mean, what was Jesus up to in regards to all of the existing laws? Well, he actually told them directly. He said, listen, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And you could just see the people going, oh, okay, good, because we're starting to get worried, Jesus. I mean, that's who we are. We're people of the law. We are super glad you're not abolishing it. So then Jesus what is it you're doing? What's with all of the you've heard it said buts? Well, Jesus says, 
I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. Wait, what? What? Picture yourself sitting there going, wait, what does that mean? You're not abolishing them, you're fulfilling them? For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law. Okay, okay, good, good, Jesus. Because that's who we are as God's chosen people, Jesus. If we don't have the law, I mean, what would make us different from all the other pagans out there? But Jesus wasn't done yet. Nothing will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, that is. One author put it this way, what did he mean? Like, what did he mean by everything? And, and what happens to the law after everything's accomplished? Because the implication is that the law might disappear once everything's accomplished. And clearly, Jesus was planning to be involved in the accomplishing. To put what he said in an uncomfortable contemporary term, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they might start disappearing once everything is accomplished. So what did Jesus mean when he said he came to fulfill the law? All right, well, the Greek term translated fulfill is used by both Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount as well as Luke in the recitation of Jesus' synagogue message. In both instances, the term means to bring to a designated end. You see, Jesus did not come to abolish, as in destroy, the validity of or undermine the credibility of the law. Jesus came to bring it to its designated end. If the law were a homework assignment, Jesus was completing it. If the law were a speech, he was concluding it. And if the law were a plane, Jesus was landing it. This was his way of saying God's conditional, if you do this, I'll do that, temporary covenant with Israel was now coming to an end. The intended from the beginning end. When God establishes his covenant with Israel, he set a timer. And according to Jesus, the time had now come. But the law wasn't just ending. The law was being fulfilled through him. John Piper puts it this way, quote, To be sure, many, many instructions and rules and religious practices and rituals from the Old Testament are no longer to be practiced. But this isn't because these practices and rules were wrong, but because they were temporary and they were pointing forward to the day when Jesus Christ would fulfill them and thus end them. The coming of Christ did not abolish them, but it did make them obsolete. And as one writer put it, it's as, it's as if though you had an overwhelming amount of debt and you wanted to get rid of it which is, as of sinners, uh, as sinners, we do, right? We owe it a, a, a sin debt. Well, one option would be to declare bankruptcy. In that case, your obligation wouldn't be fulfilled, it'd be removed. But if someone came along and paid off your debt, the obligation would be fulfilled, and the burden of fulfilling that obligation, well, that would be removed as well. You see, Jesus fulfilled, as in ended, the necessity of all of the Jewish laws. Now, there was a new covenant, a better one. 
And as Jesus' last words confirmed from the cross, that first one, it is finished. And so we have this new covenant, and it has a singular new command to love one another. How? Well, as Jesus loved us. And this new command, just like the old ones, it's in fulfilling this one new command. Now listen, listen, church. It's in fulfilling this one new command that we become unique and different and set apart and called out a holy people. It's in following this new command that we glorify and make known who God is to everybody that sees us. At the heart of the old covenant was this concept of obeying rules and rituals and ceremonies, including all of the temple sacrifice rituals to make sure you were right with God. It was, as I've heard it described, a vertical model where my concern regarded me and my performance for God. And again, so many of us relate to God this way even now. Is God happy with me? And I, I, I perceive God's happiness with me based on, well, you know, how, how good a person I'm being and how much money I'm giving and how many mission trips I've gone on and how many times I went to church this month. But Jesus, right in the middle of this famous teaching about this new covenant and this new command, he gives a new perspective Guys, one that frankly is still as shocking today as it had to have been then. He says right in the middle of all of the you have heard it said but sayings, he stops and he goes, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Notice the crazy reversal of priorities. First, go and be reconciled to a brother. Wait a minute, Jesus. Isn't the priority to be reconciled to you first? Aren't you the priority? I mean, think about what, what he was saying to people that had come all of the way to the temple. They journeyed there. They had saved up their money and bought the unblemished sacrifice. Jesus, first, I have to do my religious duty. First, I have to be reconciled to you. Then I'll go worry about my brother. And I think what Jesus is trying to teach us, I need you to hear me on this, is it is impossible to please God and hate people. In fact, under the new covenant and under the new command, you please God by loving people. John described it this way. He wrote, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother... Well, he's still in the darkness. And whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. In fact, he would go on and say, if anyone, church, listen to me now, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he can see, or excuse me, whom he has, has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen, it turns out that the new covenant is different than the old covenant. It is not keep the law to be right with God and use Jesus as your backup plan. That's what I thought. That's what I thought the new covenant was, but it's not. The new covenant is you're made right by faith in Christ. By faith, through grace, for everyone who believes, 
You are now right with God. God is good with you. Your concern should not be if you're good with God anymore. You are. You in the new covenant, you have a new primary concern. The new primary concern in the new covenant is, am I all right with my brother? Because if I'm not all right with my brother, then it's quite possible that I'm not all right with God. See, that, that's what Paul told the Galatians. He said that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And he'd go on to explain why. He would say that the entire law, all of those 600 commandments, is actually fulfilled in keeping Jesus' one new command. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, if you go back and look at all of the imperatives of Jesus and then Paul in the New Testament, all of them are simply ways to enact this new command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love one another as Jesus has loved you. Do you know how we glorify God? We glorify God by keeping his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And this is his command. Love one another. When we started this series, I told you I got this idea from a, a conference that the staff and I had gone to at North Point Community Church in Atlanta. Andy Stanley has written on and preached on this topic better and more often than anyone else. And in the talk that day that, that kind of inspired me to talk to you all about this, he asked a simple question, a question he says that really underlies the entire new covenant. It underlies the entire new command. And it was this, what does love require of me? You see, our old way of thinking where we, we mix the commands up with Jesus and, and you know, I, I've got to be good and if I'm not, I've got Jesus just in case. There we had a question that underlied it too. Our question then when we believe that way is, well, how do I get right with God? That's the question at the center of, of that. Our answer was to obey the commands as you can and we mess up, ask Jesus to forgive you and hopefully you will. Under the new commandment, or excuse me, under the new covenant, and under the new commandment, the central question that now underlies it is different. Because your main question is no longer, how can I be right with God? If you're a believer in Jesus, you are right with God. Jesus has taken care of that. The new question is not, what does the law require of me? Bad question. It leads to bad places. The new question is, what does this new covenant, what does this new command demand of me. Put more simply, what does love require of me? Guys, that has been the point of this whole series. Paul and Jesus did not give us a command for every behavior because he didn't need to. Jesus gave us one command that we run every behavior through. What does love require of me? In regards to everything. We've been using FACES, F-A-C-E-S, as an acronym for five of the nearly hundred ways we are taught how to love one another. We've been learning how to forgive, accept, care for, encourage, and submit to one another. And so, let me ask you, when it comes to forgiveness, what does love require of you? Because you need to understand you can't be right with God and wrong with others. It, it doesn't work that way anymore. 
You know what love requires of you when it comes to forgiveness? It requires, well, that you not just offer it, but that you freely give it. That you forgive the way Christ forgave you. That you unconditionally forgive others. You cancel their debt. They owe you no more nothing. And do you know why? Because that's what Jesus and the new covenant did for you. And so I have to stop and ask, the series concludes today, it's over. Who do you need to forgive? Guys, what does love require of you when it comes to accepting other people that are different than you, think differently than you, act differently than you? Well, it requires you to accept others the way Jesus accepted you. To which, in our old way of thinking, we might say, well, they're not acceptable. They don't do what I want them to do. Heck, God, they don't even do what you want them to do. I see all the things that you say to do, and they're not doing any of them. To which I think Jesus would look at us and go, and neither did you. And yet, while you were still a sinner, not only did Christ accept you, he died for you. Now listen, do not confuse acceptance with approval, but more importantly, do not withhold or make acceptance contingent upon approval. And so now, series is over. Here's the question, what does love require of you in terms of someone who you have held back acceptance from because you didn't approve of them? You didn't like what they do. You don't like what they do think. You don't like how they act. You don't like how they vote. You know, love requires you to fix that. What does love require of you in terms of caring for one another by, by carrying each other's burdens? I mean, I know it's not your problem. I know it's not your fault. And God does too. And you know what? I mean, think about it for a moment. Our sins and our brokenness and our lostness they weren't God's problem. God was just fine. And they weren't God's fault. But you know what he did? He drew near to us and he bore them. He bore our sins and our burdens. He didn't say, well, you know what? They're going to get what they deserve. Instead, he took what we deserved and he gave us what we didn't. And the inheritance of sons and daughters of God can I ask you, series is over. What does love require of you now in terms of carrying the burdens of another? What does love require of you in terms of encouraging another? I'll tell you right now what it requires. It requires that you and I stop sitting, sitting idly by, minding our own business, while people that God loves mess up their lives and, and, and their eternities. It means that we have uncomfortable conversations as we enter into each other's business, not in order to judge anyone, but to lovingly encourage and correct them. Look, I said this the other day, and I want you to think about it. Love does not always look the same way, but love never looks away. And that kind of thing, that kind of encouragement, it, it, it's only done in relationships which means that what love requires of you, listen to me, church, what love requires of you is to get off your couch and into relationships. And finally, what does love require of you in terms of submitting to one another? Well, Jesus modeled it. He not only submitted to the will of the Father, heck, he modeled for us 
what it looks like for us to submit one to another. Because you know why? Jesus tried to show us he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he gave up his rank, right? He made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. Being found in appearance of a man, as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even a scandalous criminal's death on a cross. And so I have to tell you, guys, today the series ends. It's over. Can you pick someone, anyone to submit to? Now, this, this is not easy. Uh, let's just be honest, right? Can we be totally honest? Obeying the Ten Commandments is a lot easier than loving others. Jesus did not replace the commandments with something easier or soft, that's for sure. Because when God answered this question about what love would require of him, the answer was his own son. When Jesus answered the question of what love would require of him, it cost him his life. Of course it's not easy. It's a lot easier to not kill my brother than it is to forgive, accept, care for, encourage, and submit to him. But church, the series is over and you need to know, this is the new family value. This is the new family vision. This is what makes the family of God unique and peculiar. It's as if God wrote it down and wanted us to post it on, oh wait, he did. This was what once got people's attention about Jesus and his church. You know, there was a time when people outside of the church didn't share the church's beliefs, but geez, they were super enticed by the church's behavior. How they loved one another and the, the widows and the, and the orphans and the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed and the sinners. Now, unfortunately, many outside of the walls of the church still don't share our beliefs. And most of them aren't enticed by our behavior. It's time to re-embrace the gospel, my friends. We have a new covenant and a new command. Let us one another, one another, especially, listen to me, especially now in these next two weeks as the world, and you know it just like I do, the world is going to get more divided than ever in the next couple of days. Not you, church. Not you, not us. You know why? Because we forgive and we accept and we care for and we encourage and we submit to one another. And I'm telling you, the world will still know that we're his disciples and that God loves them if we would love one another. And now, I want you to go. I want you to go into these crazy, divisive coming days, but as you go, stop. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and make sure you look deeply into the faces of another.